Hey guys, this is Lindsay Weddle with We the Criminals, The Human Experience. I'd like to put this out as official episode number two because my first one was just basically an intro that I got discouraged on because I recorded an hour-long podcast and accidentally deleted it permanently uh, while trying to edit some of the earlier audio files that I disagree with. Um, oh my gosh. Chunk, what do you want? We have animals interrupting. Sorry, guys. So, through this podcast, I hope to set a platform for people to share their experiences, and I hope it's cathartic and therapeutic, and we can laugh about it, and they gain insight and experiences through communication and, of course, through comedy. And my hopes are to eventually expand and eventually interview comedians with a platform and... This is kind of a Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening meets a Mark Maron podcast. It's going to be narcissistic. It's going to be uh, about my personal experiences and what I've went through in this rinky-dink town of Fort White, Florida. Uh, we were ravaged by drugs about ten years ago, uh, some of the heavier ones, in the midst of the war on drugs. And... Yeah, I've gained a lot of uh, traumatic experiences, and some, in hindsight, are rather funny. And like I said, uh, comedy is tragedy over time, and it's all about timing and how you deliver it. And I think that uh, with every bit of laughter, there's a bit of humiliation. So, humility before laughter. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, where do we start? Um, I'm from a family of six. I have three sisters. My two younger sisters are twins, and my older sister is my only role model for the time being. As she and I are the only two in this town, I'm convinced, did not start and continue on the meth train. Now, uh, my parents divorced when I was 15, leaving me and my sisters to fend for ourselves. My little sisters were 13 years old, and uh, they basically just kind of went back to their roots. They became children again themselves. They were like teenagers. Um, Their actions and behavior were juvenile, and they did not guide us in the crucial years of our young adulthood um, into higher education or teach us about jobs or anything we needed to function in the real world. So I've basically been walking blind up until this point in my life, and haven't had any help or assistance. Um, Well, I won't say that. I had my grandparents, but uh, they were just so fed up with everybody's bullshit that they were just, they were in the mood. They're too old. They can't, I mean, they were my parents when I was younger, my second set for a long time. They lived right around the corner from us. We had a very close relationship, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty much a headstrong person. I, um, I don't, I don't like to listen to people. I definitely don't like taking advice. I'm, I gotta learn the hard way. Let's put it that way. And I think most of us are like that. Um, especially in our teenage years, nobody wants to be told what to do or how things are gonna turn out. They wanna, they wanna experience it. They wanna go through it themselves and kind of just, you know, feel things out. And if it happens and it's good, and it's good. And if it doesn't, then you learn, hopefully. Um. I would just 
I like to start off with a little bit of a uh, little bit of insight into who I am in my life. Uh, I grew up in this really small town. We literally have one stoplight and still have one stoplight my whole life. There's like a dollar store, three convenience stores, and a pizza place now. Subway, that's about it. We have nothing in this town. <laughs> so let's just say the, the youth don't have much to do here. And the closest town is at least a 60 mile round trip if you want to get a job or go to a movie or go shopping at the mall, anything. We're just so far out in the middle of nowhere in Florida that, I don't know, there's just spawns bad behavior and poor choices. And uh, yes, I did say Florida. And you should already know that some of these experiences and stories I will be sharing and the interviews I'll be conducting are going to be extremely interesting because we all know the best news stories start with a man or a woman from Florida, dot, 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 fill in the blank, a Florida man, Florida woman, and usually anything that follows that is so obscure and crazy that it seems like it's fake news. Well, it's Florida, guys. It's not fake. Um... We breed a special type of crazy in this state. I don't know what it is. I mean, other than Alabama, we are the laughing stock of the United States. Um, which is terrible. I, I didn't choose to be born here, but I suppose I have a little bit of the crazy side in me, too, being from Florida. I think we all do as Floridians. And it's time to just rise up and claim it, and let's share our experiences, and let's laugh about it. All right, so... Um, I was raised by a contractor. My grandfather and my dad ran a very successful construction business for many years. They built high-rises and beautiful homes on stilts and oceanfront property for prestigious lawyers and doctors. And um, They had a very good business for many years. And I think that my parents kind of straightened up their act to raise their children. And no, they didn't raise us to completion, but they did the best they could for a long time. They were upstanding citizens, wonderful people. Took care of their kids, took us to all our practices, games, soccer, cheerleading, doctor's appointments, dental appointments. I mean, my parents were always there for us. They gave us the best childhood. We traveled. We were constantly visiting amusement parks or getting taken out to spas or treated to $1,000 dinners. We, we had a wonderful childhood. I can't complain about that. Now, my teen years is when things started to get a bit rocky and my parents got a divorce and me and my older sister were luckily old enough to get a job and fend for ourselves and take care of ourselves while my little sisters were kind of just left in the dust to just spiral out and they started drinking, abusing drugs, taking pills and it progressed from there to meth. When it hit the scene out here, it ravaged the whole town. I mean, it, it got two thirds of my family, my immediate family and all my friends. So here I am. 16, me and my friends, like, the biggest thing we would go do is we'd all load up in my friend's truck, ride to the river, drink a few beers, and smoke a joint. And somewhere along the line, that wasn't enough for some people. And they took it even further, and they started taking pills. And when the pills got too expensive and more scarce because of the opioid epidemic, then they switched to meth, which was a cheaper drug for a better high, I suppose. Um... Let's see. A lot has transpired. My dad basically sold cocaine up until he met my grandfather and they started the construction business. And we have a newspaper article that my grandmother saved. Big black and white letters, bold as can be on the front page. Drive through and get your coke. 
Now, this was a pun because my father owned a drive through convenience store. So, of course, you could drive through and get a Coca-Cola or, of course, a bag of Coke. Drive through and get your Coke. <laughs> and uh, they bonded my parents out. My mom was with him at the convenience store at the time. She was rather young, still a juvenile. And uh, <clears throat> my father was in the stages of early adulthood. And my grandparents bonded them out and moved up here to Fort White, Florida, in north central Florida to start a life, and they had four children, started a business, everything was great, and then when they got divorced, um, basically my father and my grandfather took a business trip over to Texas to rebuild some of the uh, homes and structures that had been demolished by um, one of the hurricanes, I can't remember which one exactly, but it was, it was catastrophic, and they went over there for business, and they were sending money home, large amounts of money, and uh, my mother, who had one child, 18, leaving the nest, another 15 who was working with, well, it was me, I was the one who was 15, working with my older sister, and we were, I was getting ready to leave home too, and so my little sisters were just basically at their friend's house all the time, she was home alone, and I think she got what we call empty nest syndrome, and she kind of just didn't know what to do with herself or with her life, she had known nothing else but us kids for the last 20-some years, and... I mean, around, about in 20 years. I mean, this, I don't know, my timeline's a little muddy. I did drugs too. I took pills for 10 years. And uh, we'll get to that. But uh, basically, she was left to her own devices. And she had no hobbies, no jobs. She was a stay-at-home mother. She knew nothing but driving her kids to soccer practice, doctor's appointments, and being a homemaker. And uh, we had this neighbor growing up. She was a crackhead, and she would basically, every time her husband got a check, now he was military, ex-military, had a purple heart, every time he got a check, she would grab his credit cards, his debit cards, and drive his Hummer and all his medications out to crack town so she could sell everything she could for that next hit, and uh, she'd come home at the end of the weekend, basically because my parents would... uh the veteran, the man, the very nice man, would come knocking on our door and plead for help to uh, get a ride up to where his wife was at, essentially smoking crack. And um, us being the uh, good Christian upstanding citizens that we were, we would help him every week, drive him to go get his car back, get his credit cards and straighten everything out with his banks to get his money back and probably, you know, back to his doctors to get his medications and whatnot that she had sold off. So, <clears throat> I think, now this is alleged, of course, um, most of the stories I'm telling are what I've heard through the grapevine, or what I know to be true through just making my own inferences, and uh, common sense, but I don't want to implicate anybody indefinitely, because I don't know for sure, but um, basically... This woman would make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the crunchy peanut butter, of course, and she'd slip a couple pills in it. And when he would nod out, she would grab all his belongings, all his possessions that were worth money, and she would take off and go on her binge, her bender, whatever you, what, what have you. And um, at some point, I don't know what happened, but she walked over to talk to my mom one day, and nobody was home. I don't know how it transpired or how it went down, but basically my mom ended up smoking crack with her and getting on crack for some time. And 
she had this little yard boy the neighbor did uh he was a gardener or mo i don't know he was the yard boy he uh was having an affair with the woman who was married to the veteran and somehow they all met up with my mom and were hanging out and my mom ended up stealing her boyfriend dating the young yard boy who couldn't have been much older than my older sister and they were all getting high together so when my dad found this out of course he came home and they started their separation period and their divorce well um mom had gambled away almost a quarter million dollars uh that was supposed to be put towards um bills savings um just everything and we were basically the bank was foreclosing on our childhood home that my father built with his own hands from the ground up and we were just in it we were in a bad situation I had to drop out of school I had to get a job and take care of myself I had to quit my sports teams that I was on and worked so hard to maintain over the years I lost all my friends my whole life as I knew it came crashing down and well, from there, I moved with my older sister out of town, a couple of towns over, and we worked and lived together and paid bills for a couple of years. And she found a boyfriend who eventually she married. And, you know, young newlyweds don't want their younger siblings living with them. We had another roommate, a friend of ours, Ashley, a lesbian girl. Not that that matters, but she's a cool chick. And, uh,. We're all still friends to this day, but basically they wanted to start their young married life. So me and Ashley moved back home, her to her mother's house and me to my parents' house. And I came home to the situation of my parents living together and being separated. But my mom lived in my old bedroom with her boyfriend. So this was a very volatile and dangerous situation. It was uncomfortable. It was depressing. I've had anxiety and depression stemmed from that for years and I've just recently overcome it I had to take medication for a long time and it just got to the point where the medicine that they put me on I I hated it I it was like a zombie it was some type of benzo um I think it was called it's not Valium it's not Xanax uh well we'll come back to that I can't remember the name of it right now um, popular benzo, and it wasn't sitting well with me, it didn't, so they switched me over to Xanax, I was on this for a long, I would get crippling panic attacks, out of nowhere, for no reason, and I just got to the point where I was just sicking, I was, I didn't like benzos ever to begin with, now, I do remember mentioning that I took pills, yes, I took opioid painkillers for about 10 years of my life, up until the end of last year, And uh, that stemmed from two accidents where I was rear-ended, and it completely screwed up my neck. I basically have one good vertebrae out of seven. My C1 is the good vertebrae. My two and three are collapsed, no disc, and the bones are now fused together. And my four, five, six, and seven are bulging discs. And I have what's called swan's neck, where your C-curve is completely backwards from the impact of the whiplash. Now, granted, these are some substantial injuries, and it did merit me having opioids as uh, medication afterwards. But, of course, nobody tells you when the doctor writes you a prescription that uh, you start off taking what you're supposed to, and then, you know, eventually they stop working as well as they did, and you take another one, then you take another one, then you take another one, and all of a sudden you're abusing pills, and they don't tell you that you're going to have severe withdrawal symptoms and addiction for years afterwards. 
which is basically the opioid epidemic in a nutshell. Doctors overprescribing and not knowing the fallouts for the patient years in the future, which is what we're dealing with now. And they're trying to treat it with Suboxone and Subutex, which is not a good alternative because the people that were abusing opioids are now abusing the Subutex or the Suboxone. Whatever, it's the same thing. They're just there's a slight difference. But uh, basically, I got clean last year, October eighth, two thousand eighteen, and uh, it was about twenty three days of cold turkey in it. Now, mind you, I wasn't using pills heavily, heavily at this time. I was just taking them as performance enhancers and had weaned down quite a bit before I went cold turkey. And I refused to take the Subutex because. When I would get sick from the opioids, it was nowhere near as bad as getting sick from the Subutex, which is what they tried to treat the opioid withdrawal with. And uh, I lost my sister-in-law, a very good friend of mine, uh, about 20 days after I quit last year, which did cause me to relapse. I started taking pills again, not heavily, just here and there. And I'm clean again. So... This is my journey, my experience, and I'm hoping that this podcast saves my life. And if anybody's listening that is having a similar experience or loved ones with a similar experience, I hope it saves your or their life. And this is more for me and more cathartic and therapeutic for me than it is for, for listeners. But like I said, I hope to gain some sort of a platform to be able to help people talk about these things that nobody wants to talk about things people are scared to share, things we consider taboo. We need to destigmatize these things. And I think talking about it definitely helps. There's therapy in it. It's, I mean, we're not all narcissistic. I know I am. But listening to myself talk is one of the greatest rewards for right now. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I, I think that it needs to be a conversation. And uh, we're going to take a break now. My partner is coming home. And... I like to do this on my own time when I'm by myself, so I'm eventually going to interview him for the show. He has been my partner for seven years. We've suffered together through a lot of things, and I would like to interview him on one of the things that he's personally suffered through by himself, and uh, all right, folks, we'll be back. All right, guys, I'm back, and I think I left off with um, my partner of seven years pulling in the driveway. Uh, so, let me kind of explain this partnership. I, I don't know, I guess he's my boyfriend. We don't really, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have children. Neither does he. I don't think I'd be a good mother. Um, I think as women, we all have that fear at some point in our life, but I just, I don't think motherhood's for me. I don't think children, having children's for me. I don't know. Um. We uh we both met at a time in our lives where we were just super depressed and basically just traumatized by our experiences. So we met and decided to suffer together. And we have a lot of the same likes and qualities and we keep each other going. I mean, we laugh together. We like to get back on the couch and just pig out, watch TV and play video games. And he loves watching stand-up comedy with me even though he razzes me about it all the time. Like, are you putting on another stand-up special? I'm like, you know I am. 
So eventually he quit asking and just got used to me putting on stand-up at every chance I get. And uh, I'm obsessed with comedy now. I think that it's it's healing. It's it's therapy, definitely, for sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, my parents divorced. Mom started uh, smoking crack with the neighbor, and um, my dad went back to selling meth. Uh, he got in such a depression that he let his business go, all his, uh, friends and business connections, I mean, everything, he just gave up, I mean, he was, had been with my mother 28 years, um, and that's all they knew was each other and their kids, and suddenly he was just left with nothing, and his whole world came crashing down, so I don't, I don't blame him for all of this and everything we've been through, but... I do resent my parents to some extent for just just not caring. I understand that their lives fell apart. I get that. I understand they lost each other as companions. And that's basically all they knew. But they had four children that they brought into this world. And three of us were still juveniles. We had had no no upbringing into the real world. All we knew was Barbies and Disney princesses at this point. And I just, I don't understand how for so long they watched all of us suffer and spiral into addiction from, from their negligence, basically. They gave up on us when they gave up on themselves. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand the concept. How are the two people that are programmed to love you and take care of you, how do they just give up on you? I, I don't get it. This is why I don't want children. I'm, I'm sure on some level every parent screws their child up in some way. Um, even if it's just a small fear of frogs or something more extreme. Uh, I don't want another human being to resent me the same way I resent my parents. Now, that's not to say that I don't love them. I do love them, um, just from a distance. They are very toxic people, and uh, I'm better off without them. I mean, I don't know if I was better off with them to begin with, but we aren't. We don't get to choose the hand that we're dealt, so you just take it and roll with it, and you just kind of make the best of it, I guess, because at some point in your adult life, you have to stop blaming your parents for your problems and stop playing the victim card and kind of stand up on your own two feet and move past it and some people do that by having children of their own um like I said I'm not having kids so this is my podcast (laughs) uh so my dad started selling meth our childhood home was being foreclosed on and it was like a flop house for all of my friends we had five bedrooms three bathrooms in that house so a lot of my friends and my sister's friends have moved in. We were all just getting high all the time. We'd get up, go to work, come home, party, drink, smoke pot, whatever, take pills. And I got left in the dust on the meth scene because everybody graduated to meth. And I just, I'm such a high-strung person naturally that um, hard drugs that are like uppers are not my thing because... Uh, I'm already basically running at 200 miles an hour, and if I were to take uppers, which I have, I've tried cocaine, I tried meth one time, it, they're not they're not for me. 
I, you know what an owl does when they spin their head around on their shoulders? Well, that's like me, except mine just keeps revolving when I'm on uppers. So, um, not for me. Uh, I was never really into the benzos, which I was forced to take by my doctor for some time until I eventually went in and just threw the bottle back at him and said he could shove them up his ass because I didn't like feeling like a zombie. So, uh, I suppose my drug of choice would have been oxycodone, which was also prescribed to me by a doctor. And, uh, I started abusing it and buying higher milligram pills on the street. Uh, I did pills for 10 years. Um, in this time, my father got busted for selling meth. I was there when the cops raided the place. Um, so this would be the second raid I've lived through in my life because the first one was when I was 16 and me and a group of friends from school that had, um, the shared experience of having no parental guidance and... Uh, were basically orphaned in their teenage years and free to run and do what they wanted to. We all kind of moved into a house together and we were like a little family. Some of us went to work and brought home money for food and took care of the others and a few of us were doing other things like stealing to provide their portion of the money and the cops came in over a stolen four-wheeler which uh, I learned about that day. (laughs) I didn't know that all this... um, activity, this criminal activity was going on. I mean, I knew we were partying, we were drinking underage, we were selling some ecstasy, and I don't know, whatever teenagers do. And, um, I don't know, I guess we, I don't know, my friend got a little sloppy, and he had stolen a four-wheeler and parked it in the woods behind the house we were all living in, and the cops came and got it before we woke up that morning, and then came back about 20, 30 deep to uh, perform a sting on the house because they thought we were a gang. There was about 10 of us, all of us around 16, and apparently we were a gang and we were a threat. So they came in hot and just rolling deep, artillery out. I mean, it was pretty scary for a 16-year-old. And uh, luckily, they called my mom and said, well, why don't you come get her? Because... I didn't do anything wrong. They weren't taking me to jail. Um, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, she gets there, and the only thing that I owned or that was my possession on the property was my vehicle parked in the yard. And they found my little bag of paraphernalia, which, of course, had rolling papers, um, one of those little joint rolling mechanism things, little joint roller machine uh, grinder, a metal pipe that I had just bought for Modern Age, which is a smoke shop in Gainesville, which is near where I live, Gainesville, Florida, and uh, some, what are they called? They're screens for the for the pot pipes. Um, and the cop pulls all this paraphernalia out, and he starts emptying it on the hood of my car to show my mother. And he goes, look, here's her drug paraphernalia. And he holds up the metal pot pipe, and he goes, this is her crack pipe. And then he holds up the screens for the marijuana pipe, and he goes, this is DeBrillo. I don't remember what he said I did with DeBrillo. I have no idea, but I've never done crack in my life. I don't know. Um, I don't know what it would be used for. He said it was for something, for smoking the crack or something, and uh, my mom was just laughing because uh, she knew what these things were. She smoked pot. Um, I mean, my parents were hippies. They always smoked pot. That was, like, one of the coolest things about them. (laughs) But, um, Oh, she was like, 
well, I'll just take her home. And she's just giggling. She can't quit laughing at this cop. And he's like, well, I think the cop now suggests that she beat me or hit me, you know, to, to punish me for being a bad teenager and apparently smoking crack. And, uh, she, she turned on him and she goes, officer, I'm not fixing to beat my child as a form of punishment. Is that what you do? Do you beat your wife? And she just gave it to him. I mean, just couldn't believe that he had suggested she put her hands on me for a weed pipe, which of course she didn't correct him and tell him she knew it was a weed pipe. She just went along with the story that it was a crack pipe and it was not. And, uh, she, I don't know. That was, it was pretty funny, but, um, there, I have all the respect that is deserved for our local law enforcement and, uh, they're, they're, I've had some bad run-ins with them that weren't caused by me, which we'll get into that later. But, um, they're just not great at their jobs. <laughs> well, this was also 10 years ago, so I'm not speaking to how they are now and who is employed by the Columbia County Sheriff's Department currently. But, um, uh, so that happens and the raid is done and they take three of my friends to jail. Now, one of my friends took the charge for all the paraphernalia we had in the house, which weed pipes, half ounce of pot, you know, and, uh, my other friend got the charge for the four wheeler, which he did it. He's the one who stole it. And, uh, another friend of mine whose parents owned the house that we were quote unquote trapping out. And, um, yeah, so they got juvie. They did a couple years in juvenile detention hall. Luckily, we were minors and we weren't getting ourselves into serious, serious trouble. We didn't really know the consequences of our actions. We, Like I said, we were a gang of kids that didn't have any guidance, didn't have any parents around. So we were just like Lord of the Flies in it up, like for real. And, uh, well, let's see. From there, um... Oh, from there, I, uh, I was involved in the raid at my dad's house when he got caught selling meth. Now, let me just warn you about what this town and surrounding counties went through. And I know it's not just here. It's, it's everywhere. It's all over the United States. Um, we had people we'd known for years just, just shrivel up into just barely morsels of themselves. They'd lost so much weight. Their eyes were bugging out of their head. They were just like picking themselves to death where they had sores all over their face and their body. It was like the fucking zombie apocalypse out here. Like no joke. And it was the scariest thing of being in a room at a party with all my friends and there's 30 people smoking meth in the room around me and like tearing shit apart like little RC cars and lawnmowers and small equipment and what have you, and they think they're fixing things, but they're really just tearing shit up, and they can't remember how to put it back together because they're so high. Um, which, that, that in hindsight is hilarious because they have all these good intentions when they get on meth. They have all these grand plans of things they're going to do and get done, and really they're just spinning nonsense, nonsensical circles, getting nothing done. But it's scary to be the only sober person in a room of 30 people smoking meth because the reality of it is... I mean, it's, it's scary. I mean, it it was mortifying to watch my friends and family be consumed by this drug. Now, in hindsight, uh, both of my sisters, my little sisters who are doing the drug, they are, um, they're now incarcerated and they're clean. My younger sister has been in prison for a year now. She gets out in October. 
She's been holding a job while in prison and forcibly sober. I'm proud of her and I hope she decides to keep it that way when she gets out because she has a lot of building to do. Um, Starting from scratch, rebuilding your life after drug addiction, which so many of us can relate. Um, I love them all. I don't judge them for what they do or what they've done because we've all been there in one way, shape, or form. I don't give a shit if your addiction is a chocolate bar or a cup of coffee or working out or what have you. So We all have a vice. Some of them are detrimental to our health and some are not. So, uh, put it that way. My other little sister is in jail right now too. She violated her probation and uh, she recently caused a car accident where she ran three stop signs because she quote unquote took a little meth and uh, a man died. He lost his life. He's about 79, 80 years old. And uh, we thought two people had died in the accident, but it turns out the other one that was life-flighted to the hospital in Gainesville lived. So only one man lost his life. And I think there's... That's a good thing. That's great. You know, two people didn't die. It's it's tragic that one person did lose their life. But uh, she's not guilty of this crime. And for just the, the basic fact of she... She didn't know what she was doing. She was in a drug-induced psychosis. They were talking to people that weren't there. Um, I, I suppose that's hearing voices. I mean, they were just so far gone in this drug that they were just a shell of themselves. And she is in jail now and asking, you know, she says, I heard I got in a car accident and somebody died. What's going to happen to me? She has no recollection. She says, I remember getting in a car accident waking up in the hospital. She doesn't remember what she did, how it happened, and she's terrified herself of what she's fixing to experience and go through and I don't know how to help her or what's going to happen to her but all we can do is hope for the best and hopefully the judge has had some experience with uh, addiction Um, maybe not personally but through another family member or friend and maybe that he or she will have some compassion and deliver a lighter sentence because she doesn't deserve to have the book thrown at her. Now, she may deserve some reprimand, some consequences. Now, I'm not saying she should walk away from this. I know something has to be done about it, of course, because there was a loss of life. But, um, there's a fine line between guilty and innocent, and I think she's definitely straddling the fence on this one. And, um, yeah, so, back to the second raid. Uh, my dad, our our childhood home was getting foreclosed on. Luckily, he was able to sell it to a friend of ours that grew up down the road from us. Her and her husband and their four kids now live in that house. And uh, my dad lives in a shack on an acre of land. It's technically a storage shed that he's converted into a home. Which, uh, don't do meth, kids, because it will ruin your life. He was caught stealing electricity from the neighbor in the house that was being foreclosed on before he was caught for selling meth. And he's just in a shithole right now. Just living life in a shack and just doesn't care. I mean, he's coming out of his depression from the divorce. It's been a long 10 years for all of us. And uh, the heavy drug use has kind of left us in a state of mind that... We were in 10 years ago, so for me, I feel like I'm still 16. And then my dad probably still feels 40, and so does my mom. But they're no longer 40. 
and I'm no longer 16. So, uh, yeah, cops came in, raided my dad's house. I almost went to jail because I was at the neighbor's house helping the man fix his computer. I saw all the cops pull in. I ran over to warn him, and they said they could have charged me with obstruction of justice, but luckily, being the small town we live in and the good old boy system, they know that I'm a good girl and I don't do drugs and that I was just trying to be loyal to my father to help him out, but it didn't help him because his dumbass got caught with it in his pocket anyways. But, um, yeah, so he's been on probation for three years. He got five. I think one was house arrest and four were, maybe it was two on house arrest. I don't know. But he's doing good. Um, he's passed 52 drug tests to date and all of his check-ins with his probation officer have gone well. So he is still out and working his job and he's doing good. And both of my sisters are clean now, doing time, incarcerated, forcibly clean. And all we can do is hope for the best and hope that they've had enough time to be sober, to gain the clarity and to realize that they were on the wrong road in life and that they need to turn it around and make better decisions. So, that's where we're all at. Oh, as for me, I can say that, uh, I mean, that when times are bad, they're really bad. But when they're good, it's bittersweet. I mean, now, after all this has happened, everything we've been through. I mean, there was one point where I went to my dad's house just to check in. I check in on their well-being once a week. I take money over there, food, clothing, toiletries, what have you. Because they were so heavy in their drug addiction that they didn't care about taking care of themselves. So I um, assumed that responsibility and gave myself a mental breakdown at 20 years old trying to fix something that I couldn't fix. Uh, Helping people that don't want help. Uh, Don't drive yourself crazy, folks. You cannot help people that do not want to help. They have to want to change. They have to be sick of their own bullshit. They have to be sick of their lies, of their thievery, of, of just the habitual everyday runaround that it takes to get whatever drug that they're craving and when they get to that point only then can you help somebody but uh i went over there to check in on them and my younger sister she's running around the yard butt naked now her pants are down around her ankles so she's she's running but just barely stepping so because you know her her ankles are restricted by the pants so she's running around the yard and she shits in a walmart bag and throws it on my dad's doorstep. Then she shits in a styrofoam cup and throws it on his neighbor's doorstep. And then she comes running through the yard, pants around her ankles, restricted running as it may be. <laughs> and she's screaming, I'm tired of these motherfuckers shitting on me, so I shit on them. Now, <laughs> in hindsight, that's one of the funniest things that has come out of this. And like I said, there's always humility before laughter. Always. And, uh... I, as tragic as it has been for the past 10 years, I do get little nuggets of golden comedy that come through, that shine through, and I will keep them with me forever because it's the only way I can smile throughout these experiences. And uh, I'm going to have a guest on the show next week that's going to help me tell some of these stories and make it a little more uh, concise and compacted and a lot more funny. So uh, stay tuned and... We're going to have some of these people I've been mentioning in these stories come in and speak with me. So, um, back to my partner of seven years. I met him after his girlfriend had just received three life sentences in prison for a crime she committed. And we'll go into further detail about that on my, um, maybe not the next episode, perhaps the one after. Um, it depends on when he decides he wants to, uh, 
interview. <laughs> I don't want to force him to talk about it, but it's his story to tell. So I basically found him in a depression after that happened. And uh, I was in my depression from my family experiences. And we kind of just, we shared each other's suffering and kind of helped each other through it. And now we're here. So we're doing a lot better. We have a home of our own, our own vehicles, our own little fur pets, our fur babies, since we don't want to have children of our own. And uh, we're just, we're getting through life. Having a great time. I'm growing kiwi plants like a domesticated bitch. And uh, taking care of my fur babies, because like I said, we are not getting married or having children. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that's that's all for now, guys. I think I've uh, I've had enough for tonight. So, tune in next time with some more shared experiences, and uh, we'll get those stories out there of we the criminals, the human experience. And just so you know, folks, nobody's perfect. Everybody has done something they're not proud of, whether you've been caught for it or not. We all know that we each have at least one dirty little secret we'll always take to the grave. So, this show is about delving into that and sharing the human experience and destigmatizing some of the things that we consider taboo so we don't have to have these secrets we take to the grave. So we can talk about it. So we can all just be people and learn from each other's mistakes and collaborate and hopefully laugh and smile through the humility of it all. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. This is Lindsay Weddle signing out for We the Criminals, the Human Experience.